Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. All right, this morning we have a very familiar text to study, and it's one that is often misunderstood. It's normally referred to as the parable of the good Samaritan, though I'm going to suggest a slightly different title. I'm hoping it'll catch on. I'm calling this the parable of the good Samaritan and the lousy religious people, because we have two two different sides to the story. Now, as I said, this parable has often been misinterpreted. Uh, Some people throughout the history of the church, like Origen or Augustine, uh, tried to turn the parable into an allegory and and read all sorts of stuff into the story. Augustine, for instance, said that the man traveling was Adam. Uh, Jerusalem is the heavenly city from which Adam left. The thieves are the devil and his demonic forces, and they beat him by persuading him to sin. The priest and the Levite signify the priesthood and ministry of the Old Testament, which could not save him. The good Samaritan is Jesus. The binding of the wounds is the restraint of sin. The oil is uh, the comfort of hope. The wine is the exhortation to work with a fervent spirit. The setting on the beast is the belief in the incarnation of Christ. I don't quite get that one. Uh, The inn is the church. The innkeeper is the apostle. And the Samaritan's promise to return and pay the rest signifies the second coming of Jesus. Now, you've got to be really creative. Uh, to get all of that out of a simple story like this. That's one way that this uh, story has been misinterpreted. Today, though, I think more commonly the parable is taken out of context and reduced down to saying basically just help people in need. Uh, Most people, when they think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's what they think it means, just uh, help those who are in need. And obviously that's part of the point of the parable, but I think that's missing the larger context. When we look at the teachings of Jesus, the parable is no exception, uh, we need to ask, what did he mean by this? Not just what, what, what can we get from this or how do people interpret this? No, we need to ask, what did Jesus mean by what he said? And so this morning, we need to start in verse 29. We're going to look at what, what questions was he answering? What was he trying to communicate with this parable? Verse 29, you see the question the lawyer asks is, who is my neighbor? And the next verse says, Jesus replied, and he begins to tell the story that we call the Good Samaritan, or that I'm calling the Good Samaritan and the lousy religious people. So this parable is not about helping people in need necessarily. It's really about uh, clarifying the command to love your neighbor as yourself. This is an answer to the question, who is my neighbor? The Good Samaritan is an answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Now, verse 25, this is even a clarification within a larger context, because you noticed our text did not start with the question, who is my neighbor? The the text starts in verse 25. When Jesus is asked the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So there's the question that the text is all about. Uh, Verses 25 to 37 are all about how you can earn eternal life. And if that's setting alarm bells off in your mind, good. Uh, If you've been coming to our church for any length of time, I hope you realize by now that you cannot earn eternal life. But before we address that, uh, that, just understand that the point of the text is how to have eternal life. That is what our text is about. And the point of the parable within the text is about who you are required to love in order to earn eternal life. 
Okay, you follow that? So the text is about how to have eternal life, and, and the, the, the parable within the text is answering the question, who do you have to love in order to have eternal life? So we begin in verse 25, where Luke says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice right away, this is a religious man. A lawyer in the Bible is not what we think of today. Uh, We think of today an expert in the law, which is true, but this was an expert specifically in religious law. This was a man who would have been well-versed in the Torah and the Old Testament. And it says that he came to Jesus and asked this question as a test. Uh, This was not an honest question. These guys uh, regularly came to Jesus with questions they thought would trip him up or cause him to lose favor with the people. That's what's going on here. And it's important to note that because Jesus' answer is not as straightforward as it seems. It's not the way that he responds in other contexts to this very same question. Jesus' response here is addressing this man and his question in particular. This man was a part of the Jewish religion of his day. He was a lawyer, a part of the legalistic uh, Judaism of Jesus' day. Their religious system was works-based. They believed you earned eternal life by doing things. Uh, Christians say you cannot earn eternal life no matter what you try to do, so what you need is grace. And Jesus, throughout our text, is trying to get this man to feel the weight of his sin and to have a sense of his own hopelessness to earn eternal life. And this guy just does not get it. So the man asks, in verse 25, what is it that he has to do to have eternal life? Jesus responds in 26 saying, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So he turns the question right back on this man. Uh, You're supposed to be an expert in the law. Why don't you tell me how you have eternal life? What do you you think based on your study of the the Old Testament? Verse uh, verse 27, the lawyer answered saying, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this. And you will live. Jesus acknowledged that what the man said was correct. Uh, He summarized the Old Testament law as love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yes, that's an accurate summary uh, of the Old Testament. In fact, in Matthew 22, this is another occasion of uh, another scribe trying to trip up Jesus. Matthew 22, 35 says one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus responds in verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So that's Jesus saying the very same thing that this man is saying here. That that these two commands, to love God and love your neighbor, are the foundation of all the laws of the Old Testament. Over 600 Old Testament laws are simply extensions of, and specific iterations of these two principles. Love God with all, you, all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. If you love God, think about the Ten Commandments. Uh, if you love God with all your heart, you won't have any other gods before him. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't murder them. You won't steal from them. All, all of the commandments are just uh, uh, specific iterations of those two principles that the whole law is based on. Love God and love your neighbor. That is, in a sense what the Bible is all about. And what it means to be a follower of Jesus today is to love God supremely and love others as yourself. That's a good summary of the commands of the Bible. 
Now in Mark 12, we read that one, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Again, very same question as in Matthew. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love, the na- love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love with all your heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love your, one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Understanding the centrality of these two commands to everything else the Bible teaches is of utmost importance. And so Jesus in our text turns this question back on the scribe who is testing him. When the man says, "Uh, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Uh, Jesus says, well, what what do you see in the the Bible? What do you see in the Old Testament? He says, well, the law teaches to love God supremely, to love our neighbor as ourself. And Jesus says, yes, that's correct. But notice in verse 28, he goes on to say, do this and you will live. You do that and you'll have eternal life. And there's just one problem. No one has ever done this and no one ever could do this. Every time we sin, we are not loving God with all our heart. Every time we sin against our neighbor, we're not loving them as we do ourselves. I mean, can you think of any sin that is not a violation of one or both of these commands? Have you or I ever for one day in our life loved God perfectly with our whole being and loved our neighbor as ourself? To do this, you would have to be perfect. So if eternal life is only found in loving God perfectly and loving your neighbor as yourself, we have no hope. And the lawyer seems to realize this. But he's a lawyer, so he finds a loophole. Uh, He thinks maybe if the term neighbor just means family or close friends, if we can just kind of limit that word, the scope of that word, uh, to a select few, maybe I could say that I love them as I do myself and meet that requirement. So he's trying to justify himself, trying to meet this impossible standard by redefining it. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? By the way, notice he doesn't say anything about the first command. Uh, Does this guy really think that he loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength? Now, this is just my opinion, but my guess is he did. Because religious people often think that loving God means living by a strict set of rules. And if I keep all the rules and if I conform my life to uh, the commands of the Bible, that's what loving God is. But you can force yourself to live according to the moral commands of the Bible and not love God at all. You can follow the commands for all the wrong reasons. The Pharisees kept all the rules in order to look good and to impress people, not out of a heart of love for God. They didn't love God, but they were meticulous in their observance of the Old Testament laws. So my guess is that this guy thought he fulfilled the first command to love God perfectly because he did all the religious stuff. He went to the synagogue. He probably went to the temple in Jerusalem for the feast days. He was a good religious man, well-respected in his society. But the second command he knew was a problem. So he asks, who counts as my neighbor? What follows is Jesus' response to that question. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. By the way, that's in terms of elevation. I know if you look at a map, Jerusalem is lower than Jericho. This is, a, this is a several thousand feet drop in elevation in a few miles. So 
Jerusalem's up on a hill. Jericho's down in the valley. This man's going down from Jericho to Jerusalem, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. These two religious guys see the man who's been beaten and left for dead, and they likely didn't stop to help because to touch this dying man would make them ceremonially unclean. They would have to go to Jerusalem, go through some purifying rituals, and all of that was just too much of an inconvenience. Religious rules should never be placed above love. That was one of Jesus' main frustrations with the religious crowd in his day. They kept all the rules. They lived separated in pious lives, but they didn't care about people. Now listen to what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. They kept all the rules. They made sure that they were tithing. And the Old Testament required that everyone give 10% of their income to the temple. And they would calculate even to the extent of giving 10% of their spices. But they neglected the far more important matters of the law, like justice, like mercy. And this priest and Levite in the parable are such a perfect example of this type of distorted priorities, so careful to observe the ceremonial laws, but they didn't care about a guy who was dying. Let's be careful as Christians not to make our faith all about a set of rules we live by. The rules are important. Jesus says, you ought to have done these without neglecting the others. It's not wrong to tithe. It's not wrong to keep these rules. But you're missing the even more important things. So yes, take the commands of the Bible seriously and try to live a a holy life that's pleasing to God. But don't get so engrossed in the minutia of law-keeping that you miss the spirit of the law, which is love God and love people. Don't drive by a, a dying man and not stop to help because you'll be late for church. That's kind of a good analogy of this this story in our day and age. I mean, can you imagine saying, I can't stop to help this guy. I'm going to be late for church. No, you've missed the whole point. A loving God and loving others is what our faith is all about. First Corinthians 13, Paul said, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Don't let your religion be all about rules. What pleases God is when we keep his rules because we love him. And we prioritize the two rules that he said himself were the most important. Love God supremely and love your neighbor as yourself. Now let's get back to our parable. Uh, The two lousy religious people have walked by this guy and left him dying on the side of the road. Verse 33 says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Now hold on, that's not the question. Uh, The man asked, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus changes the question. He asks, which of them was a neighbor to this man? 
And the answer is obvious. Verse 37, he, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go, you go and do likewise. When the Samaritan in the story walked by and saw the man in need, he didn't ask, does this guy count as my neighbor? Am I obligated to help him? He just saw him and had compassion on him and he did what he could to help. Jesus doesn't really define who your neighbor is in this parable. He doesn't answer the question. He instead says, you go and be a neighbor to everyone you pass. This lawyer was looking for a definition of neighbor that would let him off the hook, something that would make the command a little easier to keep. But Jesus instead shows how, highly, how impossibly high the standard of this law is. And Jesus intentionally uses a Samaritan in the parable because Jews and Samaritans hated one another. Uh, We really don't have a good uh, comparison in our day for this. There was a racial aspect to it and also a religious aspect to it. The Samaritans were uh, half-breed Jews that were considered compromisers. They weren't the the pure uh, keepers of the law. They They didn't go to the temple in Jerusalem. And so the Jews and Samaritans hated one another. In fact, in other places in the Gospels, when people wanted to insult Jesus, they called him a demon-possessed Samaritan. That was like the worst thing you could say about somebody. And so to love your neighbor as yourself means to care for others, even your enemies, with the same level of concern you would want someone to care for you. The point of the parable isn't to say, this is how you have eternal life. The point is to show you aren't meeting this standard. Because no matter how loving a person you may be, No one lives their life as the Samaritan, loving and concerned for the needs of even your enemies to this extreme extent. So what's the point? First, let's talk about eternal life, and then we'll make application from the parable itself. Uh, First, we cannot earn eternal life. Reading the law should have shown this man that reality. And Jesus destroyed any chance of limiting the scope of the law's demand in an attempt to justify yourself. Jesus did this all the time with the Old Testament. The Old Testament says, don't murder. Jesus says, well, if you hate someone, uh, you've basically murdered them already mentally. Uh, The law says, don't commit adultery. Jesus says, if you've lusted, you've already committed adultery in your heart. He was always pushing the standard of the law even higher to show us that we are not keeping it. We cannot keep it. What we see here is the way most people think about religion. Most people in most religions in the world tell you to do good works in order to earn eternal life. Jesus says the only way to earn eternal life is to perfectly obey the law, which you can't do. And then most people, like this lawyer, try to reason that they're probably good enough to make it to heaven. Maybe we haven't uh, perfectly loved everybody, but we've loved some people, so maybe that's good enough. Maybe my good works will outweigh my bad works and I'll, I'll make the cut. Maybe God grades on a curve. Jesus says loving your neighbor means being a neighbor to everyone. It's an impossible standard to reach. None of us can earn eternal life by keeping the law if the demands of the law are this stringent. But for religious people, they want it to be all about themselves, their own achievement. They want to justify themselves. They see themselves as good people that surely God would accept me. Listen to what Paul says about trying to earn eternal life by keeping the Old Testament commands. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. 
In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The commands of the Bible aren't there so you can know what you have to do to to earn eternal life. You, You have zero chance of that. The commands are there in part to show you your sin. That's why Paul says there, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I thought I was a good person until I saw how high God's standard of goodness was. I thought I was pretty loving until I read a parable like the Good Samaritan and realized I don't love like that. And this guy not only took the time to help the man who was about to die, he brought him to an inn and, and paid enough to care for the guy for a couple of weeks and then told the innkeeper, whatever more he needs, you take care of and I'll pay for it when I return. And this guy he was helping was a Jew. They hated Samaritans. This should have been his enemy, and yet he extended this limitless love. And that's what the commands of the Bible are supposed to do. You should feel hopeless as you read the Bible of ever living up to it. That's part of the point. If you don't feel that way, you're not understanding it properly. Uh, Continuing on in Romans 3, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here we see uh, the plan of God to save us from our sins. We cannot keep the law and earn eternal life. There's no chance. That's why Jesus came. He was God become a human, and he lived that perfect life that you and I could never live. He did love God with all his heart, soul, and mind. He loved his neighbor as himself, and he loved us so much that he died on a cross for us. He died taking on himself our deserved punishment for the sins that we had committed. And he offers us his righteousness in exchange. Romans 5 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We could not earn eternal life on our own because we cannot keep the law perfectly. That's why Jesus came to die. If you could earn eternal life by your good works, why did Jesus die? Why did he have to come and die on a cross? This is the argument Paul makes in Galatians 2. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could earn eternal life by keeping the law, then there's no reason for Jesus to die. It was because you couldn't keep the law. That's why he came. That's why he lived a perfect life and died as your substitute. And it's through the perfect life and substitutionary death of Jesus on your behalf that you can be saved. If you trust in Christ to forgive your sins, if you repent and believe the gospel, you can have the righteousness of Jesus applied to your account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, became, uh, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. He became sin for us, taking our sin on himself, and he offers us his righteousness. This exchange is known as the doctrine of imputation, uh, that when Jesus died on the cross, God the Father treated Jesus as though he had lived your sinful life. He was killed for your sins. And when you repent and place your faith in Jesus' work on the cross, you get his righteousness. God treats you as though you had lived his perfect life. He took your sin and he offers you his righteousness. That's how you inherit eternal life. And that's the only way. It's as though you had a test to take. You had no hope of passing it. And so the teacher comes and he sits down next to you and says, I'll take your test for you. That's grace. And that's the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. It's not because you earned it, because you cannot meet the strict requirements of the law, but he did. And he offers you his perfect score. John MacArthur wrote this in his book on the parables. He said, What Christ did to redeem his people far exceeds the lavish acts of benevolence pictured in this parable. Christ is the living embodiment of divine love in all its perfections. He is spotless, sinless, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. During his earthly life, he did literally fulfill every jot and tittle of the law to, uh, to uh, absolute perfection. And then in dying, he even bore the penalty of sin for others. Moreover, his unblemished righteousness, including the full merit of that perfect love, is imputed to those who trust him as Lord and Savior. Their sins are forgiven and they are clothed in the per- perfect righteousness the law requires. They inherit eternal life, not as a reward for their own good works, but purely by grace, because of Christ's work on their behalf. Now, we've talked a lot about how to have eternal life, and I think that's important because that's uh, the context of this text. That is what the, the conversation is about that leads to this parable. That's what must be understood. However, I don't want to so emphasize grace that we make the parable meaningless for our lives today. Even though we cannot meet the standard of loving our neighbor as ourself, the command is still there. Jesus said at the end, go and do likewise. So this is a picture of how we as followers of Jesus are supposed to love others. You see, Jews and Christians sometimes have opposite perspectives on law and grace, and both can be dangerous. The Jews so emphasize the law and keeping all the commandments that they nullify grace. Uh, Paul said this in Romans 11, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If you can earn salvation by works, it isn't grace. That's the Jew's problem, and that's the problem this lawyer had in his thinking. He was convinced that the way to earn eternal life was by trying harder to keep these impossible commands. Christians rightly understand that salvation is a gift and cannot be earned. It is God's grace that saves us, not our works. But that doesn't mean the commands don't matter for us. The Jews so emphasized the law that they made grace meaningless. And sometimes we as Christians are in danger of overemphasizing grace to such an extent that we render the commands of Scripture at best optional and at worst irrelevant. I want to read that one more time. We as Christians sometimes are in danger of overemphasizing grace to such an extent that we render the commands of Scripture at best optional and at worst, irrelevant. It would be easy for me to preach about this text and say, you can't keep this command. It's meant to point out your failure to keep the law, so the only way you can have eternal life is trusting Jesus to save you. All of that's true, but we don't want to then get the idea that we just don't have to worry about trying to follow the command. And this is a dangerous uh, 
other, other ditch on the other side of the road that I see a lot of Christians falling into. That because of grace and because Jesus' righteousness is applied to us, we don't have to worry about trying to live according to the commands of Scripture. No, we definitely do. Romans 6, Paul said, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in grace uh, and sin that grace may abound? Uh, since we're not saved by keeping the law, it's all of God's grace. Does that give us a, a free pass, a license to sin? His answer in verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If you've repented and trusted in Jesus for forgiveness, that will have life-altering effects. If you're living the same life you did before you became a Christian, you aren't a Christian. That's why Paul says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The implied answer is we can't. Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't it interesting that Paul points to this command in particular? He says you've been saved by grace. You aren't bound to keeping the law. However, don't use that as an opportunity to the, uh, for the flesh. Now, don't think you can live just however you want because Jesus died for you. It doesn't matter anymore uh, if you do right or wrong. And he points out this command in particular, love your neighbor as yourself. So you don't earn eternal life by loving your neighbor, but you also do not have eternal life if you don't love your neighbor. That's not how you're saved, but if you are saved, you will love your neighbor. First John says this clearly in chapter 3. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That sounds like the lousy religious people from our parable. They see the one in need, and they close up their heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If we have truly passed from death to life, that will evidence itself in our love for others. And if we can see someone in need and close our hearts instead of helping them, God's love isn't in us. So don't, don't just say you love, let it be seen in your deeds. Loving your neighbor as yourself should be the goal. And it's a measure of how we're doing in following Jesus. So I want to close with two final instructions. How do you go about trying to live out this impossible command? Love your neighbor as yourself. Here are two thoughts. First, expand the scope of your love. Second, increase the depth of your love. Number one, expand the scope. Think of those you don't love. <laughs> start with your family, start with your friends, start with maybe even people in this church, people on, on your street, people you work with. Let your mind scan over those groups of people and ask yourself, is there, is there someone in there that I really just don't love? I have not been a neighbor to. And if you say there isn't, keep expanding the search. Uh, the Good Samaritan didn't even know the guy in the street. He just saw him there and, uh, and, and decided to help him. You know what? What came to my mind as I was writing uh, this part of the, the sermon about people that I, I, I don't naturally tend to be a neighbor to is drivers. Uh, drivers. I, I probably struggle the most to love my neighbor as myself when I'm driving, especially if I'm behind someone 
uh, that's going 10 miles under the speed limit. Or uh, somebody at a red light that's on their phone texting, they're not paying attention when it turns green. Uh, it's very difficult for me to love them. Especially, it, it always happens on one of those left turn lanes where you have two and a half seconds to get through the light, right? And so they're sitting there on their phone and then you end up missing it. Uh, that is when I personally really struggle with loving my neighbor. So first, expand the scope of your love. Start loving people you don't love now. Don't fall into the trap the lawyer did of trying to limit the definition of neighbor to a select few people. Stop asking who your neighbor is and start thinking, who can I be a neighbor to? So number one, expand the scope of your love. Number two, increase the depth of your love. Jesus didn't just say, love your neighbor. That's hard enough, especially when the word neighbor is limitless, as we've seen. But he went a step further and said, love your neighbor as yourself. So now think of those you already think, you already think that you love, your, your friends, your family, people that are close to you. Do you love them to the extent that you love you? Uh, how many marriages would be helped if each spouse tried to love each other as they love themselves? Think of how you can, in actions, display love for the ones that you claim to love now. This love is not just what the world thinks love is. We are to go beyond the, the, the socially acceptable standard. If you see a guy in the street, helping him get to the hospital is what the world would say loving him is. Offering to then pay all of his medical bills is ridiculous. That's extreme. And that's what Jesus says we should be like. Love your neighbor and love them as you do yourself. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what being a Christian is all about. It's not about going to church or keeping certain religious rules. It's no coincidence here that the two people in the story that Jesus had walk by the injured man and not help him was a priest and a Levite. And the one guy who had compassion and helped the man was a Samaritan. The point we should take away from that is uh, just because you're religious doesn't mean that you're keeping the two most important commands of the Bible, love God and love your neighbor. It should shame us as people who say we follow Jesus that sometimes non-believers do a better job of loving and caring for the needs of others than we do. This is supposed to be definitional of true Christianity. Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Nothing shows the world that we are true followers of Jesus, like when we love people the way that he loves. Father, I pray that each one of us would be convicted. God, I know I'm convicted just in studying and preparing for this and my lack of love. Uh, so often, I, don't, I try to limit the word neighbor. I try to love those that I think I have an obligation to, and then everybody else is outside of that. But this parable pierces our hearts and shows us, no, we're supposed to be a neighbor to everyone. And then so often, even those that I think I love, I don't love the way I love me. I don't love them as myself. God, I pray that you would help me and that you would help everyone in this room to expand the scope of our love and to increase the depth of our love. We'll never keep this command perfectly. Only you could do that. And so we're trusting in your righteousness, the, the life that you lived perfectly to give us access to eternal life. It is not on the basis of our works. We can't earn it. However, we also don't want to just disregard the command that you said is the most important to love God with all our hearts and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help this to be the driving force, the motivation of everything that we do in our attempts to follow you and to serve you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.
We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.